0: This podcast is brought to you by Greystone Theological Institute, faithful theological wisdom, edification, and training in a rapidly changing world. Visit greystoneinstitute.org.
1: This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.
2: I think the stone, at least in Paul's understanding, is clearly the Messiah. Uh, the messianic kind of cornerstone of the new Jerusalem, and it will result in our salvation.
1: Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and co-host, James Dalzell. James, how are you today? I'm
3: wonderful, and I'm very much looking forward to our conversation with a good friend of both of us.
1: We have a wonderful guest today. You're feeling wonderful because we yeah, have a yeah. wonderful guy on the line. Um, he's a, He is a friend of ours, uh, former colleague um, from Pennsylvania, Kevin McFadden. He's associate professor of New Testament at Cairn University. And we want to talk to him today about his new book published by Crossway called Faith in the Son of God, the Place of Christ-Oriented Faith within Pauline Theology. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Kevin, I want to start by just introducing our listeners to this topic. It's a it's an academic debate at some level, although it has significant implications for how we understand the Bible and preach and teach and understand the Christian life. But but I wonder if if we could start at the at the more uh more of the ground level. What what is this debate about that you're addressing in in faith in the son of God?
2: Yeah. Well, the the book's set in the context of a well-known debate uh, among Pauline scholars called the Pistis Christu debate. And the debate is over whether the phrase Pistis Christu, which occurs eight times in Paul's letters, means faith in Christ or the faithfulness of Christ. It's ambiguous in Greek. It's kind of like the phrase love of God in English. That could mean our love for God, or it could mean God's love for us. So uh, the same with Pistis Christu, faith of Christ, that could mean our faith in Christ, as Christ is the object of our faith, or, or it could mean Christ's own faith or faithfulness, which, uh, which many have argued that it, uh, that it means. So that's kind of the background uh, or the context of my book. But really, I only have one chapter technically on the debate. Uh, the book as a whole is a broader study of uh, faith in christ in paul's theology but it's definitely set in the context of this debate
1: now now the specifics of that debate uh, those aren't going to necessarily be immediately uh, uh, apparent questions that people will have when they read their english translations because most of our english translations that are used most widely in evangelical circles will will translate that as faith in Christ. So so it won't even be evident that there's an underlying ambiguity.
2: Yes, but actually there are some translations that now translate it faithfulness of Christ. And uh, at least in the NIV, for example, uh, it, it's footnoted as faithfulness of Christ. So you, you are right that generally speaking, people won't see that in their translations. But uh, it ha- in the last couple of decades, it has been moving more even into the translations.
1: Now, where I want to get and where I know James and I both want to really spend time talking to you is what's the significance of this? Why does it matter? Uh, what are the implications? But, but maybe if we could back up, can you walk us through just in the broadest sense, who started this debate? How did it come about? Why are we talking about it now? How did this all happen?
3: I'll add on that too. Why, why is it a debate? Um, I mean, you know, in other words, there, there's something, something has to be at stake and we'll build toward that, but why, why is it debated? Um, You're debating it. You're entering into a polemic. um, And so what sparks that? And you, and you can, you can sort of give
2: us the uh, beginnings. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. And uh, I mean, there've been many good histories of the debate written, Jonathan, like you said, people in the pew probably don't even have never heard of this before. And, um, but, but in the academy, it's, it's a very well-known debate. And, uh, and there have been a, a couple of good histories written. Debbie Hun has written a good history. And it'll be traced back into the 1800s uh, to some scholars who've written an obscure article here or there. But it was really a dissertation that was written in the 70s and then uh, published in the early 1980s. It was written by Richard Hayes, uh, who was longtime dean of Duke Divinity School, and uh, he convinced a lot of scholars that uh, that the phrase "pistis Christi doesn't mean faith in Christ; that we that it actually means the faithfulness of Christ. Um, now, why is it a debate? I think it's a debate, honestly, because his dissertation was so convincing and and it was so good, uh, and uh, and so. Um, well thought out for a doctoral student, but one thing that I try to argue in the introduction of this book is that I think the reason it became such a debate, and it's mainly a debate in English-speaking scholarship, uh, it it hasn't really caught on in German scholarship, but uh, especially in North American scholarship, I think part of the reason it has become such a debate is because Hayes's concerns were never really just with the phrase "pistis Christu." Uh, Hayes's concerns were more with Paul's theology as a whole. So I think Hayes had these theological concerns, uh, and uh, um, namely, um, Hayes was concerned that if if we say we're saved by our faith, then we're saved by something that we do. Uh, it, it, it sounds very man-centered. It sounds uh, it sounds uh, like it's our works. And so Hayes argued, actually, Paul doesn't teach that. He teaches that we're saved, we're justified by Christ's own faith and his own faithfulness. So it's a very appealing view because it, it sounds very Protestant. It sounds very Pauline. It sounds very grace-centered. Um, and yet, I argue that it's a kind of hyper-Protestant position that says, not only are we not saved by our works... Which I think is true. Paul teaches that, and obviously Protestant theology has taught that. But but in this view, we're not even saved by our faith. Uh, so, but I, I'm, unfortunately, I just don't think that Paul teaches that, and I don't think the apostles taught that. Kevin, from the layman's perspective, especially in the Reformational
3: tradition, it it almost—you can tell me if this is right or not. Maybe this is an oversimplification. Almost seems to be pitting. Our traditional understanding of sola fide against our traditional understanding of sola gratia and making us choose between them?
2: Yes. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, it's 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 opposing grace and faith. Whereas Paul, you could read in Romans 4, says if it's according to grace, if it's according to faith, it's according to grace. That, that these are two ideas that, in my reading of Paul at least, he holds together uh, but uh, in, in, in this view of Paul's theology, I think it wrongly opposes our faith and God's grace. So before we go to,
3: the, to your positive argument, uh, which is for the traditional view and the view that kind of accords with some of the you know, more well-known translations that we use, um, what, from, the, from that side, though, what is salvation? I guess that's the question. If you lose the instrumentality of faith, um, if this is not a subjective, is it a subjective genitive versus an objective for those who care, or there's a if it's not our faith, but it's rather Christ's faith, I'm thinking I can almost imagine in my own theology somewhere to put something like that. Like, for instance, in a covenant of works, where I need a faithful federal head who's obedient, maybe even unto death, as Christ was. Um, isn't there something already theologically agreeable to this whole notion of the faithfulness of Christ? So I want to—I guess what I, my question is—is is there a positive place for the faithfulness of Christ? And if you have faithfulness of Christ to the exclusion of our faith, then what does that make of our understanding of salvation?
2: Well, I mean, those are great questions. I would say yes. There, there is a positive role of the faithfulness of Christ. Uh, In fact, Paul even talks about the faithfulness of Christ uh, explicitly in 2 Thessalonians and in 1 Timothy. Um, And uh, the faithfulness of Christ, of course, is the thing that we trust in, right, Uh, uh, to save us uh, in the end. You can understand why this view is so appealing uh, even to Reformed theologians. Um, uh, Some will will uh, map it onto our understanding of the act of obedience of Christ that he right. Jesus kept the law for us and, uh, and would see those uh, those ideas as similar. Um, I, I would say in, in the broader Academy though, uh, you, I think that this view does in, for some, not for all, does tend to underlie a, a universalist uh, understanding of salvation that, it's not by anything we do. It's not even by our faith. Um, it's by Christ's own faith and faithfulness and God's faithfulness to the world in the cross. And therefore, we don't even have to believe God saves us just because of what Christ has done. Now, I do want to say in Richard Hayes' defense, um, first, he does not take a universalist position of salvation. And, and the other thing I would say is you really have to kind of understand the context in which he was writing which is when Rudolf Bultmann was the most famous New Testament scholar in the world, and um, Bultmann had written the article on faith in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Boltmann had written on faith in his Theology of the New Testament, which was translated into English and well-known. In Boltmann's view of faith, um, faith could not rest on uh, the accidents of history. It couldn't rest on the the idea that Christ actually died for us and of course it couldn't rest on the idea that Christ had risen from the grave because Bultmann didn't believe in the resurrection right I, instead for Bultmann faith just faith our, our faith heard preaching the preaching of the gospel and in light of that preaching we just kind of come to a new understanding of ourselves so Bultmann had this very self-centered view of faith very man-centered view of faith and what Hayes was trying to do is say Hayes was trying to say, no, our faith is not all about ourselves. In fact, Paul's gospel rests upon the, the story of Jesus Christ. But then in, in my take, at least, I think what Hayes did was he overcorrected to Boltmann And he said, in fact, faith doesn't even refer to our, our action at all. Instead, it refers to Christ's action. So I can understand his reaction to Boltmann. And if you give me Boltmann or Hayes, I would take Hayes any day of the week. Uh, I think he's much more faithful um, to the scriptures, uh, but I just think he overcorrected uh, in that context. And uh, and I think he wrongly argued that pistis Christi refers to the faithfulness of Christ.
1: Kevin, I want to make sure we we give time for your more positive presentation, but just one more question since, since you've done a nice job setting the context historically and also talking about how much of this was theologically driven. Um what would the answer be in the hayes system for the instrument then of justification if if it doesn't lead him to universalism then we we talk about faith being the alone instrument of our justification is is the question of the instrumentality of justification addressed in, in that
2: way obviously th- this is dealing with biblical mm-hmm. studies and sometimes your know, biblical theologians almost aren't speaking the same language as, uh, as systematic theologians who are, use the word instrumentality to refer to our faith. Like
3: Jonathan just did.
2: <laughs> Jonathan did. <laughs> I would say that I think Hayes does deny the instrumentality of our faith in salvation. Uh, uh, in as much as he argues that we are, according to Paul, we are not justified by our faith. But then in the view of Hayes and, and, and others, then there's a second step that says, wait, are we saying our faith doesn't matter at all? Uh, and what Hayes would say is, no, we participate in the faith of Christ. So we're saved by his faith or faithfulness, fundamentally at the end of the day. But then afterwards, we participate in the faith of Christ. So I think a helpful way to think about it theologically is that, that Hayes and others kind of look at our faith like the the Reformed tradition would look at our works. That is, you know, we always say we're not saved by our works, but then we say, but our works really matter, and our works flow from faith, and our works are the necessary result of faith, and will be judged in the last day, and these things. That's the way that Hayes and others would look at our faith, Uh, that our faith, we're not saved by our faith, but faith is necessary at, at least for some and and is inevitably follows and and so uh, now unfortunately and, and that sounds like a very a very strong understanding of grace but i think it's an overstatement of what paul and the other apostles taught
1: and it does of course change dramatically our understanding then of justification and how that w- works in the present all right well then let's move on to your your positive presentation. So this is the debate. Th- this is some of what's at stake. And you're arguing both exegetically and in terms of the broader context of Paul, that it is a misreading of not just this phrase, but all of Pauline theology. So I know I'm asking the impossible, but but walk us through that a little bit maybe use as touchstones, some of the key passages that are um, formative. So
2: my argument, let me, let me step back and say that um, one thing I've tried to do in this book is I have tried to make a theological argument uh, because I think that those who've been making the theological arguments have been those who hold to the faithfulness of Christ view. Um, Whereas those who hold to the faith in Christ view have said, well, let's just set theology aside and talk about the meaning of pistis and the grammar. And and I'm trying to argue, no, let's look at the theology uh, because when we look at the theology, it's very clear that Paul taught that we are saved and justified by our faith. So um, my my thesis is that uh, Paul significantly emphasizes Christ-oriented faith in his theology. And I pursue that thesis by first uh, looking at the historical background of Paul's understanding of, uh, of faith, and I try to look at, at texts and traditions that Paul explicitly uh, appeals to in his teaching about faith, and I, I do that by looking at mainly uh, his Old Testament quotations and also his appeals to uh, Jesus' teaching about faith, and then I also try to compare and contrast that with other uh, uh, Jewish interpretations of the same uh, material, uh, and in, in that chapter, I try to argue that Paul uh, appeals to, uh, to texts in the Old Testament that um, clearly speak of uh, belief and trust in God and, and even in Christ as, the, uh, as a cause and a condition of our salvation. For example, um, I mean, an obvious one is, the righteous will live by faith, uh, so, uh, Habakkuk 2.4, although that's, that's a debated text in, in this debate. Um, but another would be um, Isaiah uh, 28.16, um, the one who believes in the stone will not be put to shame, um, and uh, I think the stone, at least in Paul's understanding, is clearly the messiah, uh, the messianic kind of cornerstone of the new Jerusalem, and it will result in our salvation. Or, or Jesus even taught. He said, "You know, if you have faith, um, you will be able to uh, move these mountains." And Paul appeals to that tradition in in First uh, Corinthians thirteen. So I feel like I'm getting too in, in the weeds. Sorry, Jonathan. Oh, uh, no, these are good. No, these are good weeds. This is great. <laughs> um, but my basic argument in that chapter is just to say. Listen, Paul appeals to all of these texts and traditions that speak of our faith in God and even in Christ as a cause and condition of salvation. Would we be surprised then to hear Paul teach the same view? Um, Then the second chapter is really the main chapter of the book. It kind of stands or falls with this chapter. And in this chapter, I try to go through all of Paul's direct statements uh, about Christ-oriented faith. And uh, but all of these statements are outside of the Pistis Christu debate. Uh, and I did that purposely because it's so highly debated that I wanted to kind of quarantine it off into its own chapter and even acknowledge you don't have to agree with me on the translation debate, but we can look at other statements that Paul makes and say, clearly, Paul thought that we are justified by our faith. So, for example, in Galatians Um, 2.16, in the beginning and end of the verse, there are two pistis Christu phrases, but if we block those off and look at the middle of the verse, Paul says he and Peter had come to believe in Christ, right, Um, come to confess Christ in order to be justified. So clearly there's a causal relationship that Paul saw between his faith in Christ, and uh, his justification, or Peter's justification. And uh, so I, I try to make those kinds of arguments in the second chapter of the book. Uh, the third chapter of the book, I just try to reinforce the thesis by looking at conceptual parallels to Christ-oriented faith that um, that just show how much Paul actually emphasizes it. The fourth chapter, I uh, address the translational debate head-on, and in that chapter, I try to interact really deeply with Hayes's original thesis, which I don't think has actually been done uh, at that level. Uh, and then the last chapter of the book, I try to tie together all the strings and and just present a, a positive view of, of Paul's theology that shows, at least in my reading of Paul, h- how important uh, faith in Christ really is.
1: So as you step back and think about this whole debate, and maybe even your own Journey in writing the book. Um, what are the key issues that Christians need to be reminded of in in the context of this discussion? Or what are the key things that were reinforced in your own thinking about your your status and life as a Christian? In other words, what what are the even if someone is unaware of this debate or unaware of the translation issues or the history in New Testament studies, what are some of the bedrock Christian truths that this, this touches upon and, and, in your case, reinforces?
2: One thing I would say is um, the gracious nature of our salvation. Um, and here, here's where I really agree with uh, those with whom I'm uh, having this uh, debate with. You know, sometimes I think when we talk about being saved by faith in the church, we forget it's not because our faith is so great. It's because we believe that God has delivered his son to die for our transgressions and raised him from the dead to bring us to life. So we're saved by faith, not because faith is such an awesome thing, but because faith rests upon Christ and Christ is the one, the only one who saves us. So um, so really the object of our faith is God's grace Uh, And, and Paul and others even teach that our faith itself is a gift of God. It's a, I I would call it, and I'm using kind of the language of John Owen here. It's a condition of salvation, but it's a purchase condition. It's something given to us on the basis of the death and resurrection of Christ. So, so I think we, we should remember uh, the gracious nature of our salvation. I think we should also remember the importance of, of our faith though, that we actually believe that Christ is the son of God, that uh, that he was incarnate, that he uh, died, that he was risen from the dead. He's at the right hand of God. You know, Paul was a missionary, right? And he was going around trying to convince people that this was true, like to bring about the obedience of faith. And I think sometimes we um, too easily forget the importance of calling ourselves and others to actually believe in the gospel because it is the instrument by which we're saved.
1: Um, Kevin, I wish we had more time, but we don't. Uh, I, I really appreciate you as a friend, but also you as a scholar in writing this book. I know I'm speaking for James and saying the same thing. And thanks for giving us a couple minutes of your time today.
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was a joy.
1: James, uh, Kevin's a friend. We had offices in the same hallway as him while he was working on this. So obviously there's a personal element to this uh, discussion. But But putting all that aside, I think this is an important book. I do too. And it it may not be a book for everyone and and, and not everyone's familiar with these debates or or needs to be, but I think it's a significant, Oh, it is a significant topic.
3: This is, I I mean, I can remember being in seminary 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago and working in the seminary bookstore and we, and we sold Hayes's book um, because not because the seminary was advocating it, but because it was just a significant and influential monograph that needed to be wrestled with. And Especially for those of us in the Reformed tradition that take Christ, that take those as references to our faith in Christ, um, not discounting Christ's own faithfulness as the second Adam, but that Paul is talking about our faith in Christ. Um, it might be surprising to the person in the pew that that needs to be reiterated, but they sh- they should know that the serious scholarship that pastors in training are wrestling with is dominated by, interestingly, the other side of this. And I think Kevin's right in a world that um, in a world that is increasingly, especially in a Christian world that is increasingly non-confrontational in its approach to the unbeliever and is trying to soften the blow in every way. If we don't have to in the imperative or the hortatory mood, say to someone, believe, you must believe believe
1: in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you yeah.
3: must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. if we if if it's all if it's all a reference to the subjective faithfulness of Christ, then where is the imperative in our preaching? Where is that command um, and that and that solicitation? To the individual himself to believe, and I think that that in a way, and and Kevin was right. He's he's not going to pile on Hayes and say that was Hayes's objective, but it does it does really find an agreeable reception among those that are inclined toward a you know the kind of anonymous Christian idea, the idea that we're all really saved. Some of us just know it, um, and there's really nothing. There's there's no there's nothing really you need to do. Like subjectively believe in Christ. Um, It's all been objectively done by Christ and there's no obligation. Um, And and I think this book really puts the lie to that. Um,
1: I, I, I agree. I mean, one of the things that blew me away when I read it, I read the Hayes book last time. I've read it a couple of times. I think the last time I read it was probably 15 years ago. But I would say that the other thing that really blew me away when I read this was I think he diagnoses what's going on, Kevin. That yeah. is diagnoses what's going on very clearly and addresses it in just the right way. It's not he doesn't take an atomized approach to this, although he does the hard detail work as well. Anyway, we could go on and on, and and Kevin's a friend, but but for anyone who is going to seminary or who is engaged in theological research, uh, pastors. Uh it, this, is, past, this is a the pastor
3: here. who wants to be refreshed in his in yes. his, in his yes. convinced exhortation for people to believe. Um, this is this book is going to be Ex- fuel exactly. for that fire.
1: Right. I would recommend it to anyone in those categories. And uh, it really, it really is uh outstanding. So the book is Faith in the Son of God. It's published by our friends at Crossway, and the author is Kevin w mcfadden and if you'd like to enter for a chance to win a copy of this book you can do that at placefortruth.org click on the theology on the go link and there'll be instructions there we're so grateful for all of our listeners thank you for the feedback you give us thank you for the support you give us if you're able to support us financially you can do that at alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org but most of all we thank you for listening to theology on the go a brief interview about an eternal truth
0: University and seminary credentials are not the end, but only steps in a lifelong calling to theological wisdom, and theological wisdom is greatly needed today. Greystone Theological Institute exists to resource rigorous and effective continuing education and scholarship by hosting full and micro course modules, study days, seminars, workshops and other events designed for advanced theological edification and fellowship. Exploring and deploying advances in scholarship across the disciplines, Greystone sharpens skills, provokes new questions and reconsiders old ones in the mode of confessional reformed Catholicity. Join the next course or event at Greystone in Pittsburgh or online or become Become a Greystone member at greystoneconnect.org today and enjoy access to the rapidly growing online library of all modules, events, and seminars for the price of a paperback. Greystone Theological Institute, faithful theological wisdom, edification, and training in a rapidly changing world. Visit greystoneinstitute.org for more about Greystone and greystoneconnect.org to become a member today.